Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your RPG treasure trove. I'm your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and this evening uh, we're doing things a little bit differently than I thought we would. Uh, we had a couple people uh, have to pull out of the Nighthaven game for tonight, so we'll get back to that at some point. Uh, so instead, because uh, he's going to be on the show again in two weeks, or he's going to be on the show in two weeks, uh, David Beatty's not going to be on the show tonight, unfortunately. Uh, but he'll be on in a couple weeks. I'm going to go ahead and dive back into Weird Frontiers and cover all the stuff that I glossed over or outright didn't cover in the last video because uh, these Goodman Games books and, and these DCC books, because this isn't necessarily a Goodman Games book, it's endorsed by them but not put out by them. Anyway... DCC books are gigantic. They're like, you know, this thick. My, I don't have my, my, you can see the book over what is my, my right shoulder. It'll be on the left side of the screen if I can point to it. Right there. That's my Dungeon Crawl Classics book. Just sitting back there over my shoulder. Uh, so you can see that thing is gigantic. And all of these books are basically the same size. Uh, so... That's why I kind of missed some things. I got to talking about the classes very in-depth, and I didn't get to cover everything that I wanted to cover, or everything that would be essential to cover for a beginner's guide. So, here we are, and we're going to be discussing all of that tonight. Uh, before we do that, though, just a couple things to let you guys know. Um, <clears throat> one, because people are talking about it now because it's actually arriving here in the States, I do in fact have, and this is so hard to hold up, uh, Batman the Animated Series Shadow of the Bat. It has finally arrived. I have my all-in pledge. Um, <clears throat> I've got all the boxes here. In fact, if I turn... Actually, no, you can't see them, because they're on the floor right now. Uh, but I have all four boxes. They're here. And I... We'll do an unboxing video at some point. Maybe this week, maybe next week. Um, this is this week is my birthday, so I've got some things going on right now um, that are that are keeping me from like doing a full unboxing video because you know getting together with family, getting together with friends, all that stuff. So. <clears throat> probably not this week, but likely next week, I'll be able to put out a uh, unboxing video on uh, Batman the Animated Series Adventures and 
you know, so far, initial impressions, it's pretty cool. I've already looked at it. It's it's awesome. Uh, but I'll be going through all of the contents of the boxes, showing you guys the miniatures. We'll do it just like we did the Deadlands one, where I'll have my table. You won't see my face. It'll just be camera pointed down. Uh, the camera's a lot better this time, though. So there's that. So that'll be cool. But that's what we've got going on today. Uh, you know, just we're going to be looking at some uh, Weird Frontiers again. So I'm going to jump on over to screen share and we are going to take a good look. All right. So, when we last left off, uh, we were talking about the Luchador. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Sorry, I'm uh, dealing with a little bit of sinus stuff today. Per usual, uh, for anyone who is familiar with my show. Anyway, we, we did talk a good bit about the Luchador here. I am once again going to harp on the fact that the uh, the Luchador's paths should have been Technico for the Righteous Path, uh, Rudo for the Path of the Damned, and then Free Agent is fine in the middle there. But, you know, that's just me being the, the wrestling nerd that I am. That's the thing I'm going to call out. But I did talk in pretty good detail about the luchador and you know what comes along with the luchador so we're actually going to skip over this one and we're going to head over to the mountebank because i only talked very briefly about the mountebank which you'll see here on this uh this lovely illustration i'm gonna back it up just a little bit for you guys <clears throat> so the mountebank Basically, what the Mountebank is, is an alchemist mixed a little bit with like a warlock in that they are very charismatic. So not only are you able to, you know, create your potions and your elixirs and things like that, you're also, uh, you know, you're, you're the, uh, the archetypal snake oil salesman. So you have to, you know, have the gift of gab. That most of the time you don't maybe associate with kind of a more, like, potion-focused character. So, again, it's it's a very important archetype for a Wild West game, and it's cool that it's here. Uh, but what you're looking at here is a, a D6 hit die. Now I'll zoom back in so you guys can actually read these... Uh, Read this a little bit better. So yeah, D6 hit die, uh, D6 crit die, and D12 fumble die. Action die is the same as everything. You add your luck bonus to showmanship rolls. Uh, you are self-serving, so you are walking the line with a uh, slight leaning towards Path of the Damned. And then, uh, you know, you're, you're using your elixirs in place of, like, mundane weapons, so your signature weapon's not really going to be a factor for you, but 
you know, a derringer, a small pistol, or some kind of small knife is something that you'd be carrying. And class abilities. So you've got alchemy, obviously. Um, so this is kind of where the magic comes in. As a reminder, uh, for those of you who saw part one and don't remember, or those of you who haven't seen part one, by the way, if you haven't seen part one, go watch it. It's on YouTube. Uh, but every class has a tinge of magic to them. And so you are able to imbue your uh, arcane brews and weird elixirs with magical energy and create some kind of weird stuff. So you've got your mundane formulas and your magical formulas. So your magical elixirs, uh, I imagine... In fact, we can go ahead and take a look at this because it's... Uh, not that far down. Yeah, you, you only know a certain number of formulas the same way that you only know a certain number of miracles as the uh, Revelator, which we'll get to, and you, you know, the Occultist or the Wizard in DCC only know a certain number of spells. Uh, and I believe there, there was one other that had a limitation to it. Oh, the, uh, the Bedlamite has a certain number of devices. At first level, you know four formulae, and you can have uh, a maximum active formulae of two, so you can only have two active formulae at a time, and your maximum formula level is one. So you're dealing with first four first level uh, formulae to start with, and uh, only two can be active at a time. And that goes up as you level much like spell slots in pretty much every RPG. So that's what you're dealing with there. Um, as far as the magical formulae go, you choose the one from your journal, and uh, instead of having a, a complex set of tools or brewing equipment, uh, you add the liquid to the container, and then you kind of like speak the formula and, and bring it to life. So these magical formulae, you're just imbuing with power, and that's how they become special and how they get their, their mojo. And then, obviously, because this is uh, a DCC-based game, you need to roll your, uh, your crafting roll, which is a d20 plus your intelligence modifier plus your level. They call it a brew check. Pretty much every uh, caster class has some kind of check like this, as we discussed last time. Uh, but we'll get more into that with the occultist and once we start talking about the magic rules, which we will get into uh, for a little bit. And just as a reminder, at first level, you can only have two charged at once, uh, but that goes up as you level. Then your mundane formulae, uh, you can craft non-magical components, so your acids, adhesives, poisons, explosives. So you can make little vials of nitroglycerin, you can make your alchemist fire, poison, uh, super glue, whatever you may need, depending on uh, circumstances. You do need your uh, laboratory or a portable laboratory, which I imagine... Uh, being like kind of a writing desk almost, like you, you have this uh, 
like big wooden case that you would carry and open it up and there's all these like potions and almost like the uh the the toy restorer from toy story 2 uh that whole setup that that guy has as a miniature painter i am absolutely fascinated by that little toolkit that that guy carries in the movie uh and i imagine that the alchemist would have something similar at least in my game they would and then uh there's a uh, mundane formula chart that you can go to uh to you know check the potency uh based on your crafting or your brew check and then mutagenic reactions if you uh mix certain chemicals together um you can have volatile reactions so if you roll a natural one on your brew check, um, there's going to be a problem. And uh, let's see. To determine the exact effect of the mutagenic reaction, roll the listed die found under each formula and adjust by your current luck modifier. Um, okay. And I was mistaken earlier. If you're making a mundane formula... Uh, you don't have to make a brew check. That's just something that you as a uh, an alchemist can throw together. And there's, I guarantee, some you know certain uh, costs associated with that, which we'll look at here in just a little bit with some of the formulae. You also have Green Thumb, which uh, considers you skilled at gathering components to make poultices, adhesives, poisons. So searching the surrounding area for any ingredients you may need for a particular brew or potion. Uh, depending on how exotic the ingredients are, you might have a higher DC, or maybe they're just not around. But you would roll a D20 instead of a D10 for your skill check. Um which we'll talk about in a little bit when it comes to skills. Uh, because one thing I've noticed about Weird Frontiers uh, that isn't necessarily leaned into so much in Dungeon Crawl Classics, you get a little bit of it in MCC, uh, but this game does lean a little heavier on skills. There's no formalized skill system, uh, but this... This system does go to great lengths on each class to emphasize certain activities that a you know a, a certain class would be considered skilled at. It's a lot it's a lot less apparent in Dungeon Crawl Classics. It's a lot of uh, you know stuff that's tied to your initial profession, uh, which is why it's always interesting to roll your profession at the beginning of the game. Uh, what when you're creating your character, which we went over that last time, uh, that'll give you a whole other set of skills. But there's more emphasis on class skills here than there is in like base DCC. Now, I, I bring this up because this is going to be important in a couple weeks when I go on this old dungeon with Lualu and a few other guys uh, to talk about running Dark Sun in Dungeon Crawl Classics. Uh, this is something that I've put a little bit of uh, thought and effort into. Uh, so I'm kind of laying the groundwork here, and, and once that episode is available, I will let you guys know. So yeah, that's, that's what Green Thumb is. Uh, if you succeed in your search, um, you find enough component... Or, sorry. 
a search for components uh, with like a DC 10, so like a you know base uh, search, you find enough components to make a uh, a mundane formula for it says D3 plus level user. So again, using the example as a beginner that you're a first level character. Uh, I rolled a two. So initial skill check is going to be, or sorry, the initial uh, search would yield enough for you to make uh, three of these uh, potions. So, yeah. And then showmanship. Uh, being a person of many words, the Mountbank uses fancy verbiage combined with fast hands to deceive and misdirect the audience during the pitch. And so uh, this means you're skilled in uh, stuff that would normally be associated with stage shows. So sleight of hand, oration, crowd reading, fast talking, uh, horn swoggling. Uh, which basically, hornswoggling is like deception, but instead of convincing someone to do something they maybe otherwise wouldn't do, you're also kind of sort of convincing them that it was their idea. At least that's how it's put here. I don't know uh, the specifics around hornswoggling. I hear the word hornswoggle, and I immediately think of the leprechaun guy from uh, late 2000s WWE. So, make of that what you will. And so for a lot of those, you're looking at, like, uh, probably an opposed role, uh, where you're rolling off against the NPC. But yeah, that's where the, uh, the charisma side of things comes in. Or the personality for uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. And last but not least, uh, snake veins. The mountebank often incorporates venoms from serpents and insects in the brewing of elixirs and mundane compounds. The constant use of accident and accidental exposure builds up a resistance over time. So you double your fortitude save against poisons and poison-based attacks. Pretty cool. And then here you have the mundane formula chart. So, again, these are, uh, because if we go back to this table, the, the formula, you can only create formulas that match the, uh, you know, the maximum formula level. And you only know a certain number, which you'll divide between the mundane, and the uh, the magical. So you're looking at pretty much only level one formulas here. So on the mundane chart, uh, what you're looking at is uh, a firebomb, acid bomb, adhesive, and poultice. And this is what you would be looking at as far as what they can do. So 1d6 damage for a firebomb. Uh, An adhesive that can hold up to 10 pounds, and a poultice that can heal uh, a d4 hit points. 
And it's got the ranges here for uh, fire bombs and acid bombs. And that's pretty much it for the mountebank. As far as uh, actual... I actually take a look at this. Yeah, so as far as the uh, magical formulae go, that is covered under the magic section. I'm going to go ahead and go there. It's on page 282. And just to show you an example of what we're looking at here, I'm not going to go into every single spell, every single miracle, every single formula, uh, because that's going to take forever. And you should buy these books. But what we'd be looking at here, uh, the it's a level one formula, Apache Fear Dust. So your brew roll, you're looking at, uh, you know, the, the specifics here as far as like rolling a one. We all know what happens there. Your catastrophic failures. Um, at a two through 11, you can't brew the formula for about 24 hours. And it's just lost, but, you know, no damage is taken. And then... Uh, your potency varies from there depending on what you roll. Now, as far as the mutagenic reaction, because that's the catastrophic failure, uh, you roll a d10 and, you know, add your luck modifier. So let's say you've got a luck modifier of plus two. To start with, let me roll my d10. I rolled a four, so a six. Uh, let's see, five through seven, the uh, portion of the brain responsible for fear goes into overdrive, and you have to pass a DC-12 willpower save at the beginning of any combat. On a failure, you suffer minus one D to all attack rolls during combat. Uh, so this is... I'm guessing this is forever. So yeah... Uh, you can you can fear gas yourself because I mean that's essentially what this is here is like scarecrow's fear gas. So yeah, that's what you're dealing with as far as like magical formulas. And there's all kinds of stuff listed here. Uh, the formulas go up to level five. Uh, you've got everything from you know this Apache fear dust to. Uh, Deadshot, which increases a user's accuracy with firearms, so you could brew this up for your gunslinger and hand it to him. Uh, yeah, so all kinds of cool utility with the Mountebank. So, uh, moving beyond the Mountebank, uh, let's take a look at the next one, who is the Mystic Monk. So, last time we talked about the Luchador, who is a, uh, you know, unarmed attack specialist. Let me scroll up here so you can see this monk's face. That's a lot of what you get with the monk as well. Uh, the difference is that you can also use exotic weapons, uh, which there's a table for that. Once we get to the end of this, I will go to that table and show you guys what we're talking about here. So D10 hit die, D10 crit die, and a D12 fumble die.
action die is action die, and then you have a chi die. Um, <clears throat> so what this does is it allows you to harness your chi in performing your uh, mystic disciplines. So this is going to manifest itself. Uh, it adds itself to melee attacks and damage rolls. This is like your deed die in Dungeon Crawl Classics if you're a warrior. Uh, and other classes have similar things. <clears throat> you also add your uh, luck modifier to initiative checks, which is great. And generally, you are uh, trying to maintain walking the line as far as the alignment system goes here. Uh, because monks are all about balance. And then again, your uh, signature weapon, uh, you're going to use your exotic weapons and, you know, you unarmed as well. And then uh, you can also, you know, like, you can carry a firearm, but this says you have to devote two uh, signature weapon slots to it. So remember that you get two signature weapons to start with. So if you want to use a gun, you like from the get-go, I suppose you can, but you, know, you won't be able to use whatever uh, like cool monk weapon. Then you've got the Chi Disciplines. These are your uh, your kind of magic sources as a monk. And uh, you have to spend personality points to do this. Uh, so it's very similar to the way the uh, Calavera uses their, uh, their spirit rolls. And they each cost, you know, various points depending on what you're trying to do. Uh, like the Dragon's Breath cost three personality points. Uh, but your feet and fists ignite with fire like your friggin' Mortal Kombat character, which is always awesome, and you add an additional 1d6 fire damage on successful unarmed attacks. Uh, with a 30% chance that the target will catch on fire. Uh, so percentile dice-wise, you'd be looking at rolling uh, above 30 at that point. Or actually below 30. That, yeah, that's the way it works. Below 30. And it lasts for D4 plus your level round. So again, using the example of a level 1 monk. Got my D4. Ooh, I rolled a 4. So 5 rounds. Pretty awesome. And a lot of these are pretty similar. You know, Dragonhide gives you some protection, Flight of the Feather. Um, you can fall harmlessly, run across water, all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, Tower of the Mind, uh, which is, you know, doubles your willpower save. I need to remember that. Although, I do have a, a psionic supplement that I'll be using in my uh, Dark Sun discussion. So I'm sure something similar is in that book. Uh, then Living Weapon 
part of the daily training of the mystic monk practices or practice yes practices hardens both fist and foot to such a degree that they can shatter wood and stone and break bones with a well-paced blow so this is like the uh, the luchador feature you can go unarmed if you want to and it increases as you level and martial arts the mystic monk is a true master of martial arts and may declare to use or the use of esoteric maneuvers once per round for added effect to the attack so the luchador and the monk are uh similar but diverge at different points and the uh the mystic monk is allowed to use weapons it, it's interesting how they're similar and how they're different uh, and i think it really does accommodate kind of two different styles of play depending on what you want to do because not everyone not everyone who wants to play like an unarmed character is looking to play uh like you know david carradine from kung fu some people are looking to be like a brawler and for that you'd probably be looking more like a luchador so yeah it's cool that that's there and then stealth the ability to remain hidden from the enemy while moving silently among them is a talent the mystic monk excels at uh so you're considered skilled when it comes to moving silently and remaining unseen always cool and much like the uh, luchador, you've got some sample maneuvers here from martial arts uh, with different results based on what you're rolling. And talking about the uh, unarmed living weapon die, you start off with uh, 1d5 damage uh, for your uh, living weapon, uh, but that goes up to a d14 as you level. So there's that. And then as far as uh, weapons go, let's see. I believe that is in the appendices. Let me take a look here. Maybe it's not. Let's scroll down a little bit and see what we have. It's possibly also listed under the uh, Sin Eater. We will get to HP Lovecraft here in just a second uh, once I find these exotic weapons because I do want to go over that. It's possibly under... I don't think it's under the Rules of Magic. I know this is all very uh, interesting for you guys. Here we go. So yeah, on this weapons uh, page here, you've got melee weapons, but anything that's exotic um, is listed as such. So the uh, Bognak, or Tiger Claws, those are exotic. Battle Axe, Halberd, Katana, Katar, um, Naginata, Nunchaku. 
Asai, Tetsubo, Asai Hander, all all kinds of stuff. Uh, so both as a uh, a sin eater, which we'll get to in a little bit, and as a uh, magic monk, you are able to use some of these exotic weapons. So, back to the occultist. Scroll back up here so you guys can see it again. I shouted this out in part one, uh, but that is very clearly H.P. Lovecraft, which I love a lot. So, the occultist. Uh, D6 hit points, D6 crit die, D12 fumble die. You add your luck modifier to investigation rolls. And... uh, you lean towards Path of the Damned the more you find yourself entangled in the occult. And then you're also looking at kind of smaller pistols and conceivable knives and, you know, stuff like that for uh, your special weapons. But for the most part, you're going to be relying on your spells. So class abilities, Sixth Sense. Uh, so your constant contact with the supernatural uh, has allow you, allowed you to attune to uh, human senses, the paranoia. paranoia. So you have like a, a spider's, sorry, you have a spidey sense for uh, weird things that are happening, which is always useful. So you use something like a, uh, you know, a dowsing rod, a crystal ball. Those are the things listed here. Uh, maybe even like a Old West version of the E-meter from Ghostbusters to uh, detect supernatural energies. You can focus for one round uh, and you automatically succeed to detect like the occult. Unless something supernatural is trying to hide. In which case you'd make an opposed roll. Which is uh, d20 plus your will modifier for... uh, Plus your caster level versus, uh, you know, what the NPC rolls. d20 plus will uh, plus HD number. You can also use this to detect hidden creatures and, you know, things like that. And then the arcane arts. Uh, the cultist has a rare talent for channeling ambient arcane energy into rituals and spells committed to the pages of ancient scrolls. Uh, so you have a personal grimoire which contains a certain number of spells. Uh, four to begin with. And, uh, you know, it then is, uh, you know, determined... Actually... Sorry, your four spells are determined randomly, so you roll for your initial spells. You don't get to choose, except it says here, you know, you might, GM might allow you to choose like one or two. So, mileage may vary there. And then you also uh, adjust uh, by your intelligence modifier, so you you get uh, one new spell per each level, 
And if you discover other, like, spell scrolls or tomes, you can scribe them. And then to cast a spell, you have to roll your spellcasting check, um, which is your uh, d20 plus intelligence modifier plus casting level. And there will be uh, various and sundry uh, mishaps that happen if you roll poorly. Dance with the Devil, you are constantly immersed in the esoteric and often find uh, their paths crossing with things that cause even the toughest gunslinger to run home crying for mama. So uh, you double your willpower save when attempting a grit check. Uh, So basically you are hardened to the supernatural. So Let's say, for example, party runs into a Shoggoth, um, and those who haven't necessarily seen a Shoggoth before, which will be most of you, are going to have to make some kind of uh, grit check. You, as the occultist, will uh, have an easier time with that. So, also, as the occultist, you get a familiar. So, uh, familiars, you know, they're arcane in nature. Um, They are summoned by a ritual, and your familiar uh, arrives as a result of a random roll. And the familiars all share, uh, you know, similar traits. Um, And some of them you get to use depending on what you roll. And they bond with you. uh, They get higher intelligence, higher hit points, and a higher armor class, uh, which improve over time. They get to add your reflex save to their own natural AC. Uh, They gain an additional 1d4 plus 2 hit points when summoned, and an additional d4 hit points each time the occultist gains a new level. Uh, You gain an intelligence, or sorry, they gain an intelligence score of 5 and gain a telepathic link with the occultist. They also use your saving throw values. You gain an innate trait from the summoned animal. Uh, You gain the ability to cast spells through your familiar, using them as a focus. And you gain a telepathic link with the familiar, allowing limited communication. And both can see through the eyes of the other with one round of complete concentration with a working range of one mile. So, you can put your cat on the ground... Uh, concentrate for one round and then see uh, through the cat's eyes as it goes off investigating. Uh, You also get a plus one D modifier uh, with any investigation type roll, so that's good. And you have the ability to uh, transfer written spells into your grimoire. 
Uh, so you have to roll a scribing check, which is a spell check, versus uh, you know ten plus the spell level. So you're looking at like a maximum of a fifteen DC there. And if you fail your initial attempt, you can try again for that specific spell each time you reach a new level. So you have to hold on to that thing until you level up if you fail. Also of note, the number of spells the occultist can know and the number of spells in their grimoire are the same. So... You, if you find a whole, like if you find a whole grimoire filled with other spells, you can only scribe them one at a time based on the number of slots you have available. So keep that in mind. You can't just add spells to your spell book. Uh, your spell book is what you know. And then you can also use spell burn. This is a concept from Dungeon Crawl Classics. Flavor-wise, this is one of my favorite things about this rule set. Uh, so what this lets you do is you can spend points from physical attributes to boost your spellcasting roll. So if I'm making a spellcasting roll, let's say I have an intelligence modifier of plus three, and my casting level is one. I rolled a three, so I'm looking at a grand total of seven. This will be a success most of the time, uh, but it's not going to be very powerful. So, um, let's say what I'm trying to do is I want to, like, blast something with a magic spell. And before I roll, I would need to declare I'm going to burn three points from my strength. So, let's roll that again. This time I rolled a 15. So, you're looking at, uh, that would be 18, 19, 23 uh, total for that roll. So you're looking at a pretty beefy spell at that point. And then here is the progression chart. So, you know, you're looking at uh, four first level spells at first level. You start to get second level spells at third level. Uh, and your maximum you can know uh, up to 16 spells, and your max spell level is going to be 5. And then familiars, this is what you're looking at with the, uh, the spell uh, for when you summon your familiar, so you'd roll... You're looking at, let's see, I rolled a 16, so a fox. And then you roll a d20 to determine the personality type. Uh, so I got a 12, which I got a paranoid fox. Very interesting. I like that. I like that a lot. It's very fitting. And Elfie would be very happy with that. Even if the fox was paranoid, she, she loves her some foxes. And then just to go over uh, spells again, we talked a little bit about magic. Um, it's, it's a very similar 
situation to Dungeon Crawl Classics. It's very similar to what we were talking about with the uh, Magical Formula. But if we're looking at Occultist spells, uh, Axle Grease here. First level, a uh, greasy mixture of ectoplasmic residue is pulled directly from the spirit world, offering many uses. So, um, when you roll your casting check, let's say you roll a 1, you're going to roll a d6 at that point to determine the outcome. So at that point, ooh, I rolled a 1. Uh, so corruption. At that point, you roll 1d10 modified by your... Luck, let's say I've got a luck, uh, or a luck bonus of plus two at this point. Nine, so ten, eleven. Ten plus, your face becomes disfigured, resembles, uh, constantly, and resembles constantly roiling grease with their eyes and mouth changing place right before, before writing themselves. Wow. So someone looks at you and, like, your eyes and mouth, like, wobble. And uh, you suffer uh, a minus three die penalty to, like, any social-based role. So, yeah. All kinds of craziness. That's, yeah. That's not ideal. And corruption is, in fact, forever. So, there you go. But if you roll super high, let's say you got that 22 like we were talking about, um, you summon 1d6 8-inch radius circles of ghostly grease at the feet of any chosen target with an eyesight. And then they have to make a reflex save to avoid falling prone. Then they have to make a reflex save to stand up. So you oil slick them, which is pretty cool. But yeah, that's what you're looking at with spells. And you've got, all again, all kinds of different spells. There's probably a fireball in here somewhere. If not, you can pull the fireball spell from uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics and probably learn that. I, I would make that an exotic thing, though. So, yeah. That's what you're dealing with there. From the Occultist, we move on to the uh, Revelator. And what you have here from this image of a nun with two six-guns is the uh, Weird Frontier's answer to the Cleric. It's all very similar. Um, D8 hit points, D8 crit die, and uh, D12 fumble die. Fall from Grace, sometimes a Revelator... Yeah, Revelator takes a wrong turn while trying their best to walk the righteous path, falling from grace. can often seem random, but it's known that God has a plan for everything. Uh, so if you roll a natural one on divine healing or a miracle check or turn back the night check, um, you have kind of fallen out of favor with your God at that point. 
and you begin your fall from grace. There's rules for, uh, you know, what that means and redemption for that uh, later on down the road. You add your luck bonus to your willpower saves. Uh, you walk the line and lean towards the path of the righteous. And you're usually looking at firearms, clubs, and bladed weapons. So, uh, you know, at this point, two six guns, a shotgun, something like that, you know, maybe a sword. And as far as your class abilities, you have divine healing. Uh, so you touch subject and you roll d20 plus your personality modifier plus your level and reference the healing chart. Um, so the healing chart here, if you roll a 1 through 11 and they are on any path, uh, it's a failure. If they're on the same path and you roll a 12 through 13, you're looking at two hit dice, uh, adjacent path, one hit dice, and opposing path, one hit dice. 14 through 19, three dice for same path, two dice for adjacent path. One dice for opposing path. 20 to 21, four dice for same path. Three, four adjacent. Two, four opposing. And then anything above, or anything 22 or above, five dice for same path. Four for adjacent. And three, four dice. And again, if you roll a one, fall from grace. And the hit dice that you use are your own hit dice. So... The example it gives here, uh, you know, if you're a gunslinger, it's a D10, luchador, D12, etc., etc. So what's interesting here, uh, I like this dynamic because there's always the whole thing of, you know, would the cleric actually heal the thief? Because the thief's a thief, and the cleric's, you know, a holy man. So how would those two coexist? And what's interesting here is they coexist, but... You know, ultimately, you're not going to be able to do as much for them because they don't follow God. One thing that's interesting here, um, you know, if you're poisoned or if you get some kind of crazy disease or you know you lose a limb or something like that uh dave did put a chart in here to show uh what that would equal out to as far as the hit dice so there's that uh then you have divine intervention uh so you can invoke your uh your god by rolling a d20 plus your personal personality modifier plus your cl Judge will set the DC depending on, uh, you know, what you're looking for. And then if you're doing something that's crazy ridiculous, uh, it's a DC 18 and you get a plus 10 DC penalty to any further divine intervention checks for the next 24 hours. So this is a like, hey, I'm calling in all the heavy artillery here, God. Uh, so, you know, asking for something else after that, especially like, 
it gives the example here of uh, you know lighting a lantern. So if you do call fire down upon the sinners, and you succeed on your DC eighteen check, asking God at that point to be like, "Hey, can you light my lantern too?" You can see where that would you know incur other penalties there. Don't know how theologically sound that is, just based on kind of my own faith, but you know. Mechanics are mechanics, so. Uh, you also get exorcism. So you can, uh, you know, expel evil spirits from creatures. It's a contested uh, roll of wills. You get to add your personality modifier and your caster level uh, versus their d20 plus willpower save modifier. Uh, if you win, the spirit is stunned for one round and unable to possess another target for 24 hours. If you lose, they retain control over the host and they retaliate with negative energy, so 1d4 damage per hit die of the entity. And you are stunned for one round. Uh, you also get to double your willpower save modifier versus grit checks and fear-based spell effects. And you have your miracles, which function essentially like spells. Um, you ha have a certain number that you know. And we'll look at that in just a little bit. But, you know, you make your miracle check, which is basically a spell check, but with personality instead of intelligence. And you consult the chart for the result. And turn back the night. This is your turn undead. You uh, roll on the chart. And depending on how many hit die the uh, entity has that you're rolling against... Uh, NE means no effect. T means that they are turned in the uh, quantity indicated. So you roll a 13 and something with one hit die, you turn for you turn one of those creatures. And then a turned creature moves away from the uh, revelator at a maximum speed or cowers if unable to retreat. Uh, they flee for 1d6 turns. D means they're damaged. So some of your higher results, you're looking at uh, certain amounts of damage that you do in addition to turning them. K means they're automatically killed. So with these kind of weak sauce creatures um especially you know like your one hit die creature something like a basic skeleton if you roll super high on this uh you can kill up to like 2d6 of those things with no save 2d6 plus your class level which is important and something with 11 to 12 hit die so let's say you're trying to turn uh, let's 
So you're trying to turn, like, I don't know, a color out of space. Which is in the bestiary, if you remember last time. Let's actually take a look at that. That is a, uh... I, I'm curious. So, color out of space. As far as the hit die, oh, that's not listed. Um, 10d8 for the hit die. So, back to what we were talking about. Uh, turning something big like that as a revelator. 9 to 10 hit die, That's this is where we're living right now, this side of the chart. So you don't do anything unless you roll a 30 or a 31. And if you somehow manage to roll a 32 plus, um, you can turn up to 1d3 of them, bless your class level. So yeah, you're not going to be doing damage to something like a color out of space, uh, but you can turn it if you really, really boost that thing. And then Holy Smite. That is not a, like, fake Christian swear. Uh, Holy Smite, depending on what you roll, you can uh, smite certain creatures and it deals that amount of damage. So, you know, you're not getting one until about uh, the 24 to 27 range. You're looking at a 60-foot beam that deals 1d3 damage. And it smites, like, everything in that proximity. So you would draw that line. And it goes up to, like, a 120-foot cone. So if you roll super... Let's say you're turning that color out of space and you roll that 32+. plus, um, You're also, like, hadoukening whatever's in front of you. So potentially you could deal 1d6 damage from your holy hadouken. But that all depends on how... Uh, how fast that color out of space can get out of way. And then you've got your miracles known, just like spells known. It's it's the same basic concept there. And then the Sin Eater. Great little piece here, very Assassin's Creed-like with the Sin Eater. Um, so Sin Eaters are interesting. They are basically... Paladins, but taken out of certain time periods. And their whole deal is they uh, basically ferry people to their final judgment as they're dying. That's what you do. Uh, you're either taking them to heaven or hell. Uh, so you're looking at... Um, D8 crit die... D12 uh, fumble die and a D10 hit die. And something that's interesting here, uh, you can reserve the, uh, you know, if one of your funnel characters dies, which inevitably they will, you can say that they didn't die, they became a sin eater. So, yeah. That's something that you can do.
You add your luck modifier as a sin eater to uh, navigation related roles while in the spirit world. So much like the uh, Calavera, you too can enter the spirit world. And you can also navigate it. Uh, you have to hold to the path of the righteous. Um, because again, you're you, essentially you're a paladin. And your signature weapon, you can use some exotic weapons um, just from kind of like all across time. And one of your weapons is going to be the Soul Aegis, which you will pick from. Um, as far as class abilities, you have the Last Rites. Every Sin Eater carries an ancient tome that contains every burial rite known to man uh, to perform the Last Rites. Spirit must be a willing participant, and uh, the spirit will lie prone while the Sin Eater places an obol, the coin that you give to the ferryman, in the mouth of the spirit, uh, and then perform the burial rite. Uh, the obol then returns to the Sin Eater's palm the following round, and the spirit goes down the river Styx. Then your soul ages. You served as a ferryman before being chosen to return to the land of the living. Ushering souls along with the river Styx is an undertaking filled to the brim with peril. Every ferryman is known to carry the weapon they wielded at the time of their first death. The weapon becomes a symbol that identifies each among their brothers and sisters in the underworld and is used to help protect the souls shepherded along the perilous shores of the dark waters. So, uh, you pick your weapon. That's your soul aegis. They can be either a melee or a missile weapon. And you get the following properties. It can never be permanently destroyed. If it's ever broken, it instantly crumbles to ash, only to appear whole again, strapped or holstered to its owner's side on the next rising of the moon. As the weapon is directly linked to the Sin Eater's soul, the weapon can never become lost should the weapon be stolen or somehow separated from the owner the Sin Eater will instinctively know the direction and distance to the weapon. So if your weapons are taken from you by the bad guys, uh, Sin Eater can find them, or at least find his. Soul Aid just becomes deadlier the closer it gets to the underworld, so while you're in the spirit world, uh, your crit range is increased to uh, 19 to 20. And if you go into the far... So, essentially into hell, your crit range goes up to 18 to 20. Uh, but creatures in the spirit world will actively avoid the dreadful weapon and suffer one, one die penalty to all melee attack rolls that target the Sin Eater. So, in the spirit world, you are King Baller, and you can, uh, you know, Kill whatever you want, and it's harder for them to kill you because you work for Charon. It also uh, gets a little bit of a bump when you're fighting undead demons and uh, spirits and creatures that aren't native to the earth. Uh, they take normal damage from the Soul Aegis, even if a magical weapon uh, would normally be needed. 
So if you're fighting a demon that's got some kind of damage reduction, it takes normal damage from the Soul Aegis. Uh, weapon attacks to these creatures. Um, you get plus one die, and then you get plus one die on any critical hit chart roll. You also have the Ferryman's Coin, uh, which we mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, but it also lets you do some cool things, including the Soul Sense. Um, which you spend a personality point, and you can adjust your senses to include objects and denizens of the near, so the direct spirit world. Uh, you can sidestep into the near, uh, much like the Calavera. And let's see. Uh, once the personality point is spent... Okay, yeah. So those are your uh, your coin powers. You can sidestep and you can soul sense. And then for river rights, uh, ferrymen all know a set of rights taught to them by Charon himself. Uh, the rights serve to protect and aid the shepherd as they usher their precious cargo to the afterlife. The rights also serve the sand eater well with missions in the land of the living. So these are certain things you can also do um, by spending your personality points. Uh, you make a roll plus your personality modifier plus your class level. And you can shadow walk. Um, so this gives you kind of, you know, improved stealth. Uh, Corvus Corax. Uh, you can open a portal directly to the underworld, which pours forth a flock of Stygian ravens to aid in the protection of the Sin Eater. Uh, Ferryman's Reprieve, uh, which gives you a little bit of protection, uh, offering a supernatural barrier that helps repel malevolent forces. All of these are written up uh, down here below the progression chart. They've all got their various charts. They work like spells. And here's your progression. So, last but not least, we have the Tommyknocker, which I talked about a little bit last time. Tommyknocker is very similar to the, uh, the Herald in Deadlands. This is an undead character. And again, this is one that you, uh, Reserve for any of your funnel characters who didn't make it. Uh, you can bring them back as a Tommyknocker. So you get a D14 hit points, D8 crit die, D12 fumble die. Uh, you add your luck modifier to fortitude saves. Your path of damned because you're undead. Uh, you prefer melee weapons because you have supernatural strength. And as far as class abilities, uh, beat with the ugly stick. So you are... Uh, you're ugly. 
you're your daddy's son, and you suffer one die penalty to all initial reaction rolls. Uh, you also get Dark Inheritance, uh, which gives you some uh, certain... Yeah, you get certain powers uh, at the cost of personality points, very similar to other classes. Uh, they do different crazy things, so Deadhead... Uh, Oh, wait, sorry. Dark Inheritance is uh, gone into a little bit. Yeah, it's it's down here. So it's got different uh, kinfolk depending on who your... Uh, who your, uh, your, your progenitor is, I guess is the best way to put it. Um... So Mother Maw is the, like, entity that essentially sends you back out. Um, and she kind of, you know, associate gives you a, a kin that you're associated with. Uh, so you spend one point of your personality. Um, So yeah, you can use any of these powers depending on just, you know, what you want to do. And they channel different spirit spiritual creatures. It's a weird concept. It, it's pretty cool, uh, but it's it's difficult to explain. But yeah, so uh, Deadhead, uh, you don't have to breathe, eat, sleep, or, you know, do any other bodily tasks. You're immune to poison suffocation and damage from inhalation attacks uh you automatically pass roll the body checks but suffer a uh, permanent minus one to stamina uh, with each return so you don't die you you come back to life but each time you die and come back you get a minus one to stamina so you don't just get to come back scot-free and if your stamina reaches zero, then uh, you you die, die. No rest for the dead. Uh, Tommyknockers have no need for sleep and are immune to sleep-related attacks. Uh, however, they find their senses slightly dulled as a direct result of being dead. Uh, thus, foes attempting a surprise attack on Tommyknockers gain a plus one die modifier. Uh, stitch it up. You aren't capable of, heal capable of healing wounds naturally or by magical means. Uh, so you have to manually repair damage suffered to you. Um, you can spend an hour repairing a wound to uh, get one die of hit points. Allies wishing to aid the Tommyknocker have the time normally required to make the repairs as long as they have medically related occupations. So you can't be affected by potions or healing or anything like that. You have to physically put yourself back together. You also have Strength of the Grave. 
Uh, so you return from the spirit world with the strength of the grave coursing through your rotting veins. All melee attacks gain a plus one die modifier to damage rolls. Strength-based skill checks, including grappling, also benefit from this plus one die bonus. You also get tough as nails. Uh, so you can't feel pain. You shrug off all but the worst wounds. All damage inflicted on you suffers a one die penalty to a minimum of one points of damage. Um, you don't suffer critical hits. Damage rolled with a critical strike is still taken, but is reduced by one die in size before the roll. Uh, but no one can roll a critical chart on you. Just the effects don't happen because you're, you know, a corpse. And then you you also uh, reduce your initiative by one die because you're stiff. So there's some cool stuff that you get. There's also some trade-offs. It's an interesting choice. Uh, would definitely make for an interesting character if that's the way you wanted to go. Uh, but there's definitely some trade-offs here. And this is the uh, the Dark Inheritance. So... You spend a point of personality and you can, uh, you know, bring up a banshee. Uh, so you gain a ghostly appearance, uh, an unhinged jaw, and you have a row of glistening fangs. Um, you gain the whale of a banshee. Friends and foes have to pass a grit check with a DC of 8 plus your class level. Um... One chosen enemy has to pass a higher DC willpower save to avoid suffering a loss of 1d3 grit points. Um, but there is a, another drawback to each of these powers. So if you channel this power, uh, you open the Tommyknocker to extreme feelings of oblivion and loss. And when the power ends, the Tommyknocker must make a willpower save at DC 10 for the next 24 hours. Or, or for the next 24 hours, be unable to speak or communicate well. So it's stuff like that. Um, same thing over here, like if you go for the ghoul kinfolk, uh, you get uh, long claws and a long tongue uh, that lets you get two uh, claw attacks that are d20. They do a d8 damage each. And they get, uh, they've got venom associated with them. Your tongue also lets you spear portions of meat from slain victims to uh, give yourself additional hit points. However, if you do that, um, seeing the body of an ally. Uh, may awaken your taste for flesh. You have to pass a DC 10 willpower save to avoid spending their next round removing a choice cut of meat from the wound. So your wounded friends might make you hungry. It's gross. But it's pretty metal. That's that's pretty metal. So yeah, that's the Tommyknocker. And here you've got a, a piece of art that looks a lot like Jonah Hex from DC, for anyone familiar. Um, not just like him, but, you know, similar, definitely similar. 
And from here, there are some rules we do need to discuss. Uh, skills. So, as I mentioned, uh, skills are something that this game emphasizes a little bit more than DCC. And basically what you have uh, with the skills, if you guys will give me just one second here to close this. If you are considered trained in the skill, so this is anything from your previous employment or anything associated with your class, you're rolling a d20. If you aren't skilled, you're rolling a d10. Where'd my d10 go? Here it is. D10. So that's what the, you know, the skill is. And it's the same thing with, uh, you know, up contested roles. You're trying to beat, instead of a DC, you're trying to beat someone else's uh, role. And as far as what you know, like I said, it's, it's in your occupation... Uh, and it's also in your uh, your class. And one thing that I'll add here, uh, this is not in the book. This is something that I would do. And I actually got this from uh, John McGuire. He talks about this in 3-2-1 Action. If you can adequately explain being skilled in something in like two sentences, I will allow you to roll it skilled. Now, this is not like something complicated like blacksmithing or uh, alchemy or something like that. This this would be something mundane. This would be like, you know, tracking, if you're not necessarily a character that would know how to track. Um, and this is something that's actually discussed in Dungeon Crawl Classics in the skills portion. Um... So down here it says, like, if there's ambiguity, your character may have used the skill somewhat, but not regularly. You can make the untrained check with a plus two bonus. And then um, if a skill is something that really any adult could have a reasonable chance of attempting, then any character can make a trained skill check. So one example here would be, uh, like, riding a horse. Because you're in the Wild West, uh, everyone's going to be rolling, like, to control their horse with a d20, at least in my mind, because uh, that's something everyone would be familiar with. So, yeah. And you can spend time, uh, This there is, like, rules here for, uh, you know, learning new skills. So you announce your intent to the judge. Uh, they determine what would be required to begin learning. Uh, so, you know, like small skills, a book on the subject, uh, you know, a little instruction from a trained person, a little bit of practice and you're good to go. Advanced skills, uh, you know, you'd be looking at a lot more in-depth training, more expensive purchases. And then uh, once the conditions are met... Uh, you have to spend time studying or practicing one hour minimum for a certain number of sessions as determined by the judge. And then you can increase your untrained skill check uh, by one die 
as, you know, practice time passes. Once you reach a D20, uh, you're now skilled. So it's, it's a gradual process of over the next five sessions, if you spend an hour per session training on this thing, you get to add a die type until you get up to, uh, you know, your, your D20. So an interesting idea. Especially for a game that doesn't have a formal skill system like, you know, 5e or even more formal and robust like uh, 3e or 3.5. So it's it's interesting to keep that in the game uh, and, and adding that to DCC, which is very uh, light as far as other systems. They generally keep it to rolling a d20 and meeting a DC. So... It's a cool system, and one that, as it says here, isn't taking too much away from actual gameplay. It's just, you know, essentially hand wave, make sure you're paying the price, make sure you're stating that you're doing it every time, make sure there's time for it every time, and you're able to continue doing this. As far as other uh, things that can pop up in this game... Uh, let's see. Uh, for occultists, you have to worry about corruption. So, uh, when you roll a natural one, you have to roll, uh, corruption. Which you'll see on your spells. Uh, you do also have the corruption table here. You've got minor, major, and greater. which can do all kinds of crazy stuff here, up to and including an Elder God using your body as a repository for uh, lost souls. You also have Elder Gods as patrons. And what this does, I mean, um, you, you can bond with an elder god, do so in secret. Um, you can also do uh, you know, mercurial magic, which is mentioned here. Um, let's see. Yeah, so this is things that, uh, you know, if you're rolling on the Mercurial Magic table, certain things will happen just depending on the spells that you're casting. So it's it's another form of, uh, you know, similar to Corruption. And then Revelators, we do need to talk about Fall from Grace because you can find the displeasure of your god at certain points and you have to atone And what, what this does, it's not just like if you roll a one, but, uh, you know, like if you uh, fail four straight attempts at magically healing an ally, um, your threshold for falling from grace increases. So 
at this point you have to then atone. And what that means is um, you have to roll 1d4. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Roll and sum a 1d4 for each point in the roll result and reference the fall from grace toma chart. So uh, down here, you roll uh, 1d10. for atoning and certain results will uh, come about. So sometimes you might have to, uh, you know, pray uninterrupted for 10 minutes to atone. Sometimes it'll be more like, uh, you know, you completely lose your ability to turn back the night until you can complete a quest of atonement, uh, where a creature considered undead is put down in a display of holy retribution. That's if you roll a 14. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, all kinds of crazy stuff that you will need to do uh, to potentially atone for your sins. And then we also need to talk about... Uh, so critical hits, critical fumbles, um, you've got your charts that are, let's see, if we pull this up here, uh, is there a critical hit chart down here? Oh, here it is. So yeah, for different weapons, you've got different charts. So like, you know, critical hit for firearms. You're looking at this, and depending on your class, that's what you roll. You've also got stuff for piercing weapons. Uh, there's fumble charts for melee and ranged and firearms. Firearms are very special. We'll get to that here now. Uh, so, you know, that's what you're looking at for the crits. And firearms. Firearms have their own set of mechanics here. And what you're looking at with firearms is uh, specifically, we have to talk about, we're, we're going to move past all this uh, talk about cartridges versus cap and ball that is important for reload time, but we have to talk specifically about the gun deck, which is did I pass it here it is the gun deck so each player with a character that carries a firearm should have a standard deck of playing cards with jokers close at hand so for demonstration purposes I will once again be using Cheyenne Wright's uh, action deck So you shuffle your cards before the session begins. I shuffled this before we started tonight. And every time you discharge a firearm, you flip up a card. So I flipped up a nine of clubs. Uh, so two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine, and ten of no effect. It's just a normal red. Uh, if you flip a black or red suited face card, 
Uh, you get good fortune for the attacker. Face cards offer a one-time bonus to attack and damage rolls, depending on the card flipped. Uh, jacks are plus one, queens are plus two, kings are plus three. Aces and eights are bad. Uh, if you remember part one, Wild Bill Hickok was killed with aces and eights in his hand. That's the dead man's hand. Um, you immediately roll on the firearm fumble chart with your appropriate fumble die and uh, modified by the reverse of any luck modifier. So subtract three from your roll if you have a plus three modifier. Flipping a red joker gets you an automatic critical hit and you receive 1d3 boon tokens. Flipping a black joker is an automatic misfire and you get 1d3 hex tokens. So, talk about those tokens here in just a second. I'll talk about some of the other stuff that you can do here. Um, multiple firearms and gun decks. <clears throat> so if you're using, like, multiple firearms, uh, it does recommend just using one single deck. And you reshuffle the gun deck once the last card has been flipped. Uh, you can also declare in off time that you're cleaning your guns, uh, which will allow you to reshuffle the deck. Or you can spend a boon to do that at any point. And if you uh, roll a natural one after a safe draw from the deck, um, it's a miss, but you uh, don't have to roll a misfire. You just uh, get a hex token for your natural one. And if you... Uh, roll a critical success and draw an acer and eight... Uh, the misfire still happens, but the fumble chart roll does not. Uh, and then any stated hex tokens are still earned as well. And the last thing to talk about here with guns is fanning the hammer. Uh, so this is in the Western movies when you see guys with a single action revolver uh, do this thing. Where they're, you know, just like literally pushing back on the hammer. It's because single actions, you have to cock and then fire. So this is basically you rapidly cocking the gun and firing in succession. Uh, the best example of this is in the movie Hidalgo, and you also see it during the gunfight at the OK Corral in Tombstone. But there are several other examples. Those are just the, the two that come to mind most readily. And so when you fan the hammer... Um, you're basically firing rapid. Uh, each shot uh, past the first suffers from kickback, so you're looking at a minus one die penalty each time you do it. Unless you're a gunslinger, then it's just minus one penalty. Um, and that's just minus one point, not minus one die. And then every time you fire a shot, you have to pull a card from the gun deck. So... Let's say I fire four times, pull four cards. Uh, card number one's a nine of clubs, if you remember. Card number two is a seven of spades. 
Number three is an ace of diamonds, so that's going to be a misfire. And then, you know, the fourth card's a two, so one misfire in there. And then much like in DCC, there is a, uh, a two-weapon penalty, again, unless you're a gunslinger. Uh, they, get, they get to be special. Now, as far as the uh, hexes and boons, let's see. Boons and hexes. These are represented by poker chips. It recommends white for boons and black for hexes. So that's what you're dealing with there. Um, anything used as a weapon inflicts... Or sorry, that's damage. Uh, boons and hexes. There we go. Boons. So uh, Lady Luck, benevolent patron, often keeps a watchful eye on heroes destined to be major players. Uh, so anytime a natural 20 is rolled on a d20 attack, characters grab the lady's eye and receives a boon. This also happens when you get uh, your face cards or when you pull a joker. Actually, no, it's ju just when you pull a joker... Uh, and it's a red joker, and when you roll a 20, you get a boon. And so this is the way that uh, boons work. You get to add plus one die uh, to a modifier, or sorry, plus one die modifier to both attack and damage rolls on any one attack. You can spend a boon anytime to allow an instant reshuffle of the gun deck. Uh, you can spend boons to rid the character of hex tokens on a one-to-one -one basis. Uh, you spend a boon for a re-roll with the exception of a natural one, which can't be re-rolled. Uh, you can spend a boon for a plus one die modifier to any roll. Or a minus one die type if that's more favorable. And then you can spend a boon to give an ally plus one die modifier to their next action. On the opposite hand, you've got your hexes. And these come from Lady Calamity. You can earn a hex at any point when a natural one is rolled or when a black joker is pulled. And then, uh, let's see. Each hex token adds a cumulative plus one die penalty on any fumble table. So um, for every hex token you have, you get a plus one penalty on fumble tables. Uh, if it's acquired by a failed attack roll, count this hex along with any already attached to the character before rolling on a fumble chart. So you've got two already, you roll another one. You've got three, you would add all three to your uh, fumble roll. Hex tokens modify any interaction rolls with NPCs by minus one die per hex. And then each hex token makes the grit check 
uh, that much harder. Each hex token adds plus one to the grit check DC and a plus 10% modifier to the madness chart roll. So for fear and madness, um, we've talked a little bit about grit checks. That is the measure of your mental and physical stress that you can handle before completely unraveling. Uh, you get your grit score by adding stamina plus personality ability scores and dividing by two. So you average the two. Uh, you make a grit check when you're confronted with any form of fear uh, that the judge feels is warranted. And your grit check is a d20 plus your willpower save modifier versus a standard dc8 plus the number of hit dice the creature has plus any hex tokens attached to the character. Um, so this is mostly around uh, like coming into contact with something from other worlds. So, you know, coming into contact with uh, a Shoggoth or something like that. And if you roll a natural 20, um, your grit total improves by plus one but cannot exceed the starting score. Um, if you fail your check... Uh, then you succumb to the effects of fear. You lose temporary grit points equal to the number of hit dice the creature responsible for the check has, or one point if a creature did not cause the check, and uses the amount of check failed by modifier, by luck, and hex tokens to consult fear chart for additional effects. And then critical failure, if you roll a 1... Uh, you lose grit points equal to twice the number of hit die the creature has. And the creature gains a plus one die bonus to all attack rolls against you. Uh, failed grit checks, like we said, temporarily reduce grit points. If you reach zero uh, temporary grit, uh, you suffer a temporary mental breakdown and you roll a percentile dice modified by your luck times 10%. And you consult the madness table, which we'll look at here in just a little bit. You can recover grit up to your original starting total at the end of each adventure. Um, unless you're reduced to zero during the adventure. If that's the case, then your grit is total... Uh, your total grit's reduced by one at that point. So if you reach zero, uh, your grit goes down by one forever. And that is, as this points out, the end of each adventure, not each session. So an adventure, this recommends one to four sessions. Uh, so this would be like at the end of a module. Or, you know, some session, some adventures are one session, so it would be, you know, at the end of, once they accomplish their goal, they can get their grit back. And then characters reaching a permanent zero grit score have gone insane and are unfit to play. Uh, insane characters are often taken to the closest sanitarium, where quality of treatment varies from facility to facility. 
Judges should keep the now NPC involved in the story in small ways to help build the depth of the overall campaign. And if you fail, you roll on the fear table, which has different uh, results depending on what you get. And then madness. When you reach zero grit, uh, you reach your breaking point, and you roll on the madness table, which is this right here. Um, if you roll zero to 25%, you get a minor phobia, 26 to 50% minor disorder, 50 to 75% major phobia, and 76 to 100% major disorder. So these will uh, permanently affect you in some way, varying on what you roll. So it's a, like I said in part one, this is very much uh, inspired by Lovecraft. So this is kind of, you know, porting in the kind of Call of Cthulhu sanity mechanic here. And it does so in a really interesting way. In fact, uh, you know, Deadlands does something similar. And uh, that's that's really something that I find interesting in this game. I mentioned that it has some similarities to Deadlands and some differences. Um, the similarities are, you know, they're, they're present, but they're not so similar that I would call this a Deadlands ripoff. This is something that I'd have to talk to Dave about the degree to which he was inspired by Deadlands, because uh, I don't know. But there are some similarities there. So if you are familiar with Deadlands, um, coming into this world is not going to be as daunting as it would if you're just familiar with, like, D&D. Same thing if you're familiar with Call of Cthulhu. Uh, you're going to recognize a lot of this stuff. So there's entry points there for people who like Call of Cthulhu, or like Deadlands, and want to try it in this particular system. So all in all, um, those are really the important things to talk about. Uh, there are other things in here, like uh, there's, you know, discussion of the states and territories in... This game's version of the Weird West, which, uh, you know, if we look at the front end sheet here, somewhere in here there's a map. Actually, no, the map is a separate thing. Um, unless there's... There we go. The U.S. map. Okay, so the map is a separate... Um, Thing. I do have the map, but I don't have it pulled up right now. <clears throat> but yeah, there's rules for, you know, uh, or there are tables for town and environment generation. Um, <clears throat> downtime, technology, uh, carousing tables, all that kind of cool stuff. So... There's a lot of cool stuff here. Uh, the bestiary is awesome, as I mentioned. Uh, so you're looking at... You know, there, there's your typical uh, cowboy stuff. 
like if we looked at uh let's see You've got your Western fare, like the Chupacabra. You also have, if we go down to S, Shagaths. You've got Spawns of Yig. You have Star Spawns of Cthulhu. Uh, Cthulhu himself is not statted very wisely, in my opinion, so... You know, keep that in mind. Uh, as far as, like... Yeah, yeah, so you're looking at a lot of just kind of, you know, weird West creatures. All kinds of cool, crazy stuff here. Carnivorous plants. That cactus is hugging that man to death. Great stuff. And down at the bottom here in the appendices, you do have an advanced firearm table, uh, which goes through all the different details of what kinds of weapons and, you know, rifles, revolvers that you can get. Uh, people like me who are, you know, weird about, you know, what, what kind of weapons are available in this time frame. Uh, you know, what... What time period are we playing in? That kind of stuff is all covered here. So you go from... The the game itself is set in the, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, so the you know late 1860s. But you can move it forward into the 1870s, and it still makes sense. Uh, so, it, you know, having a, uh, a star double action or a uh, cult peacemaker, the... Uh, <clears throat> yeah the peacemaker the uh frontier those you know th those would be available too you might not be able to get a hold of like the more exotic automatics uh stuff like the mauser and things like that that you would see in you know red dead redemption so, you know, keep that in mind. You can probably add it into the game, though. It wouldn't be that hard. So, yeah, that's what you're dealing with here as far as uh, Weird Frontiers. Uh, this should give you everything you need to know to start things off. Definitely buy this book. It's available on DriveThruRPG. Let me make sure of that before... So, let's see. DriveThruRPG... Weird Frontiers. Yep, there it is. You can get the uh, PDF here on drive-thru. $30. Great value. Physical books will be available sometime in 2022. Uh, hopefully by North Texas RPG Con time. So that would be right around June. But you can get it digitally. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm really looking forward to running this for people. And I'm really looking forward to having David Beatty on in two weeks.
that'll do it for today's episode, though. Uh, next week, I am finally going to be having a conversation with Aaron the Pedantic. I feel like our paths have been destined to converge for quite some time. Uh, so this will be interesting to finally talk to him. I've got a bunch of things I'm dying to talk with him about. Uh, that'll be a ton of fun. I'm looking forward to it. And of course, after that, uh, the the following week, we will be uh, talking with David Beatty. And sometime between now and then, I will be recording This Old Dungeon with Luau Lu and a few other guys talking about uh, running Dark Sun in Dungeon Crawl Classics. I'm really looking forward to that. I hope you guys are too. And I'll let you know when it's available. So until then, guys, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I will see you all next time.